Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the Psalms of Ascent, and here Jim Jordan is going to discuss Psalm 134. We do invite you to take a look at those links down there in the show notes, specifically to subscribe to our YouTube channel and to make sure you are keeping up with our blog as we post new articles every Tuesday and Thursday. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing Psalm 134. We're together Psalm 132, but... I did not have time to prepare this psalm. It's 18 verses long. I didn't get it prepared for my satisfaction, so I don't intend to talk about it. I'm going to jump to number 134, the last in the series of the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 134, a song of ascent, sung by the people as they came to the feasts at Jerusalem, as we understand and written in a kind of an ascending style with certain repetition of phrases. Behold, bless the Lord, all servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the sanctuary and bless the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Now, this psalm is most likely a response psalm. Let's imagine that we have been walking to the Feast of Passover or Booth, that is Tabernacles or Pentecost, and we've been winding our way up toward Jerusalem, and it's come into view as we've seen in some of the earlier Psalms, and now we've arrived not only in the city, but as we will see in Psalm 132, we approach the temple. In Psalm 133, we get to the temple and we say how good and pleasant it is for us all to dwell in unity, and then we have arrived at the time of the evening sacrifice the time of the evening sacrifice, and we come in as close as we can get to the temple because in the Old Testament we weren't allowed to go in there. Only the priests were allowed to go into the holy place. And we exhort the priests and we say something to them. And we say, Behold, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord, that is, conducting the evening sacrifice. Lift up your hands toward the holy place and bless the Lord. And then they say back to us, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The ironic benediction. Only here it's phrased, May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Most likely then you see that there's a dramatic give and take in this psalm. Not necessarily. One doesn't burn at the stake for speculations like that. But this is an interpretation that the commentators have pointed to numerous times. Uh, response. Pilgrims arriving at the time of the evening sacrifice, and we know that the priests were there ministering in the temple day and night. This was in the temple, of course. The order was set up by God and dictated to David, just as God gave David the plans for the temple, and David set things up. In 1 Chronicles 9, verse 33, we read, Now these are the singers, heads of fathers' households of the Levites, who lived in the chambers of the temple, free from other service, for they engaged in their work day and night, daytime and nighttime, the day sacrifice and the evening sacrifices. And then there's also an allusion to this in Psalm 92, verse 2. 
Psalm 92, verse 2. It's good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to thy name, O Most High, to declare thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness by night, morning and evening. This is an expression of the evening worship. And what we say is, Behold, bless the Lord, all servants of the Lord. What does that mean? In the first place, the servants of the Lord, by extension, would apply to us. But originally, that has reference to the Levites and the priests who were set aside as special servants. Because the phrase servants of the Lord is qualified immediately by this phrase, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. We do not serve God sitting down in the Bible. One kneels, one prostrates oneself, one stands, but in the presence of the King of Kings, one doesn't sit. They stand by night in the house of the Lord. Now these people, the priests, are called upon to bless the Lord. That really means to praise the Lord, to offer praises to God. And that gets us a little bit into what is sometimes called in theology the full bucket difficulty. If God has all glory, how can we give him any more glory? If the bucket's already full, how can we add any more to it? If God is most glorious, how can we add glory to him by praising him or by ascribing anything to him? Why does he want to have glory given to him? Why has he dictated psalms to train us to praise him? Well, it's for our good, not for his. God does not need our companionship. The three persons of the Trinity are companionship enough for one another. God does not need man. Man needs God. And so it's a great privilege to praise the Lord and it is for our good and for our blessing that we are called upon to bless the Lord and for the good of Israel as a whole. We'll look at this in just a moment. But you see, the priests in the Old Testament, because the people could not come into God's throne room, the priests went in there for them. And in order for Israel to be blessed, the people had to live righteously, but the priests also had to praise the Lord properly. You'll remember when Nadab and Abihu came to the Lord with strange fire, that is fire not taken from the altar but struck by themselves, they were put to death. And Israel as a whole was judged when the priests defected in their duty. And so it behooved them to say to the priests, Bless the Lord, those of you who stand in the house of the Lord. Now we may apply that very readily to him who stands in God's holy place today for us. Because we're not located in heaven before the throne of God. To be sure, on the Lord's day, heaven opens. Christ comes into our midst. He makes himself visible in the visible forms of bread and wine. But we are not in heaven. History has not come to an end. And so we turn to Jesus Christ, who is in heaven, and we say to him, Bless the Lord, you servant of the Lord, you who stand all the time in the house of the Lord. It's because of his mediation that our salvation is assured and sustained. The only difference being, of course, from the book of Hebrews, we learn that Jesus Christ has sat down at the right hand of God. He doesn't need to stand anymore, having finished his work. And then this is rephrased in verse 2. Lift up your hands toward the sanctuary. You'll remember that in the architecture of the tabernacle, at the far end, you have the holiest of all, where God lived. And the high priest alone went in there, and only once a year. And then out from that, you had a room called the Holy Place. And in the Holy Place was the altar of incense, and the incense went up always, carrying the prayers of the people. 
In the book of Revelation, the angel takes incense and carries it up to the throne of God, and that's said to be the prayers of the people. That's, in the book of Revelation, a dramatic picture of what went on in ancient Israel. And so the priests who are out in the larger temple area will pray toward, with hands stretched out toward, that altar of prayer, and behind it, behind the veil, which you couldn't see, God himself in the Shekinah glory enthroned above the cherubim on his throne. Just like in the ancient world, you've seen pictures of kings with a lion on each side. So God was enthroned with the cherubim on cherub on either side. And so the prayer was offered with hands stretched up toward heaven and also toward the west where the throne of God was located. Now, we no longer pray with our hands stretched in any direction because God's throne is now located wherever two or three are gathered together and not simply in Jerusalem. We no longer pray toward Jerusalem. Our churches don't have to be oriented east and west facing toward Jerusalem, but we still pray with hands raised up, or that is to say, the church used to. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, Therefore I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. At other times in the history of the church, that was taken more seriously or more literally than it is today, and people prayed with their hands raised up. Now the minister does that in our Presbyterian churches. Ordinarily the people don't. It's not our custom, but it probably should be. At least that's my opinion. If we're going to try to disciple ourselves completely, we might, like a number of other things the Bible says to do, like dancing, it's a little bit hard for us to overnight change and start to do these things, but perhaps in the back of our minds we ought to think about praying with our hands raised up and facing heaven rather than facing down toward the earth. seems to be the biblical posture for prayer. These people are encouraged to pray on behalf of everyone, and they alone could do it. The people could pray to God anywhere, but they couldn't pray in the holy place. And now we have the response, The Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. That is, out from Zion. We've seen this before. God's throne is located at the center of the earth, and the blessings flow out. As the rivers flowed out of the Garden of Eden, so the blessings flow from the mountain of God, Mount Zion. And so the blessings come from Zion, from the throne of God, outward. He who made heaven and earth has chosen to put himself and his name in Zion. And so the priests turn to the people, and they say, The Lord bless you out from Zion. May the blessing come out. And here again... God no longer has one throne on the earth, but wherever two or three are gathered, there he is in their midst. And so the throne of God is set up wherever the church is set up. And so the conquest of the world, you see, proceeds local church by local church. We go to some place that's never been Christianized before, and the church is set up, and the sacraments are set up, and God's throne is set up. Christ begins to make himself visibly present. Christ's rulers and officers begin to take up a throne a place of judgment in that city or place. And from there, from Zion, from heaven, the blessings come into the church, in the bread and wine, which is the body and blood of Christ, and then flow out to the people. Through the preaching of the word, through the singing of the word, through the praying of the word, through the eating of the word, 
Not that there's anything magical, but by faith we know that these things feed the people of God. And that way the blessing comes out from Zion in heaven as the new Jerusalem flows out from heaven, comes down from heaven, and then flows out into the earth. The pattern is the same. With this difference also, that now we all have access into the throne room of God. We are all Levites. We're all priests. In fact, we're all high priests. In fact, we're all better than the high priest because the high priest could go into the holiest of all right into the throne room of God only once a year. But we as Christians may go in any time. And so our position as high priests after the order of Melchizedek is even higher than the high priest in Israel ever was. And we also are servants of the Lord who serve by night in the house of the Lord, as we do tonight. And we can lift up our hands to the holy place, and we can bless the Lord. And then we as Christians may say to one another, The Lord bless you from Zion, who made heaven and earth. In fact, we do every Sunday, don't we? The Lord be with you, we say to the officiant. And the officiant says back to the people, and with your spirit. That dialogue, you see that also in the book of Ruth, remember, when the farmers come to Boaz and they say, The Lord be with you, and he says, And with you also. Now, I'd like to comment a little bit about one of the major applications of this psalm historically. We're moving now from exposition to a slightly different topic of application. Apparently, there were services every night in the Lord's house in the Old Testament, and we know that's true. There was the morning sacrifice. There was the evening sacrifice. There were hours of prayer. Now, in the Bible, we find that growing out of this, and it's recorded for us, there were set times of daily prayer, which the people observed, in which you may be familiar that Muslims still today in their Middle Eastern culture observe every day these set times of prayer. At certain times of the day, they bow to Mecca. Everything stops and everybody bows to Mecca. Now, that's mere crass ritual and is devoid of any spiritual benefit to them. But in the Bible, one sees this type of thing going on in the form of real prayer, and the church made use of it for centuries. Let me call your attention to some verses. Psalm 119, 148. Those of you who take notes can just jot these down. I'll read them because I don't want to take too much time. But in Psalm 119, 148, we read, let's start with 147. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I wait for thy words. My eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on thy word. It's a time for studying or singing or learning the word of God before dawn and in the night watches. Now, we would tend, with our American minds, to think that's a nice figure of speech for praying to God all the time. And, of course, it is. But to the Oriental mind, that also implies really doing that really getting up before dawn, at least sometimes, and praying to God, and really praying to him at night at set times. He doesn't divide those things up. In Psalm 119, verse 164, we read, Seven times a day I praise thee because of thy righteous ordinances. This isn't just twice a day. This is seven times a day. Now, the man who becomes a model for Israel and whose prayers kept Israel from falling completely into destruction during the time of the captivity was Daniel. You'll remember that Daniel's prayers were so powerful that Satan decided to try to eliminate Daniel because standing between the wrath of God and God's people was Daniel the Messiah. 
And Daniel's prayers were what was keeping God's people protected. And Daniel was right there with Nebuchadnezzar protecting the people. That's Daniel's position symbolically or redemptively. Daniel is a type of Christ, and as a type of Christ, he stands between God and the people, and his prayers are what is keeping the kingdom of God going in the Old Testament before it finally and definitively comes in Jesus Christ. It's kept going. It's maintained by these righteous men. And in Daniel, we know that it's really in Christ that it's maintained. But Daniel's prayers were so powerful that he had to be attacked, and Satan tried to destroy him. And, of course, you remember in Daniel 6, the story, the men said, we will not find any charge against Daniel except in the law of God. And they took him and they threw him into the ground. And after a period of time, he was raised up from the dead. All of this is a picture of the coming work of Christ. And then, of course, he destroyed his enemies, and they were all thrown to the lions. So there you are. But in Daniel 6, verse 10, we find out about how Daniel prayed. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. Remember, you prayed toward the throne of God. We lift our hands up because the throne of God is up for us. But then it was located in Jerusalem. And Daniel would pray with his hands toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Three times a day for Daniel, morning, noon, and night. Highly visible, on his knees, not sitting down, with his hands stretched out toward Jerusalem, facing Jerusalem. Psalm 55, verse 17, says the same thing. Psalm 55, verse 17. Evening and morning and noon I will complain and murmur, and he will hear my voice. As for me, I will call upon God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and noon. That's the order of the creation. There was evening and there was morning, and then there's noon, three times a day. That was Daniel's pattern. Interesting. Now, do we see this in the New Testament? After all, we're all New Testament Christians here. We don't go for all this Old Testament stuff. Well, let's look at Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. And we learn more about how, when the Bible has permeated a culture, some of the things that come to pass. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Notice how that's called, the hour of prayer, in the temple. That's the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. And Peter and John were taking advantage of the fact that people were there to go and proselytized them out of the old covenant form of faith and into the new covenant. Even more powerfully, we find in Acts chapter 10 how God used one of these hours of prayer. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Now, there was a certain man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man, one who feared God with all his household and gave many gifts of charity to the people, and prayed to God continually. Now that means at all the right times. About the ninth hour of the day, three in the afternoon, same time as Peter, we read earlier, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come into him and said, Cornelius. And then we go on from there. Now look in verse 9. And on the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. That's noon. 
And Peter receives this vision, right? Now, in verse 27, this is when God tells Peter to go find Cornelius. And in verse 23, Peter arises and goes to Caesarea and he finds Cornelius. And in verse 27, it says, Peter entered the house, he talked with him, he entered, and found many people assembled. All these people had come together. At what time is it? Verse 30, Cornelius said, Four days ago at this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. Behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. In other words, these were the set hours of prayer which had developed out of the Old Testament. And God honors those hours. The Holy Spirit specifically records the time of day for us. Now, see, the Spirit could have written the Bible without giving us this information. Remember, God could have omitted telling us this. Could have said in verse 9, Peter went up to the housetop. Period. He could have said Cornelius could have made no reference at all to the time of day. But here his house is full of people apparently gathered to worship at the time of prayer. And so we see even in the New Testament people continuing with this. One other verse I'd like to call your attention to. I saved it for last because it's the most, well, you'll see why I saved it to last. It's Psalm 119, verse 62, and it says, At midnight I shall rise to give thanks to thee because of thy righteous ordinances. Now, very early in the history of the church, in fact, there's no way to tell how early, because as early as we have any records, we find it. The Christian church made use of these daily hour offices, something easier to do in the East than in our present technological society. Nonetheless, it's worth looking at what they did. And rapidly there developed a series of seven times a day praying to God for those who could. There was the service before daybreak and then into daybreak, which was known as matins and lauds. At six in the morning, there's what's called prime. At nine in the morning, terse. At noon, what's called sext. At three in the afternoon, nons. At six in the afternoon, vespers. And at bedtime, a service known as compline. Let's take a look at how they thought about that. I'm going to read to you some remarks by T. Robert Ingram, the Calvinistic Episcopalian. The Episcopal Church has maintained these things more than our churches have, and I want to say at the outset that I don't agree with everything that Ingram says in his series of sermons on worship by any stretch of the imagination. I'm Presbyterian, but I think that some of what he says will give us an idea of how the church, the early church and the medieval church thought about having these daily hours of worship. Let's look at some of the problems with that. If everybody was going to church for a half an hour, an hour to stretch, three times a day, or six times a day, or seven times a day, there wouldn't be any time to conduct the cultural mandate. And we are used to thinking and I think properly so, that we work six days and we rest and worship on the seventh. That's the biblical pattern. And yet we also see in the Bible, underneath all that, running along this pattern of daily prayer. And the way they thought of it was, you have an army of professionals who are praying to God, and then you also have those who are not professionals and who worship on the Lord's Day. And one group is not superior to the other, at least that was the theory. Ingram comments on what happened at the time of the Reformation. Public worship was taken out of the province of highly trained participants and given over to the general public. It was very like the demobilization of a standing army and relying solely on the militia or citizen soldiers. 
Despite the idealism and patriotic fervor the citizen armies boast, it's well known that they have no chance against professionals. Even the American dream of the spirit of 76 cannot reverse the truth of the fact that the militia were virtually worthless. That's not entirely true. Where Republican Rome is cited to the contrary, the case only proves the original point. Republican Rome, like the tribes of Israel under Moses and Joshua, was itself a standing army. Just as the service of the king requires highly trained full-time officers and men, either in the form of a feudal baronage and knighthood or a standing army, so the service of God performed as a part-time work by secular Christians suffers accordingly. Well, the point he's making is this comparison or analogy between those who devote themselves entirely to this work of prayer and those who pray only on Sundays in the public sense. Now, the idea there we can see in the rule of St. Benedict. Benedict was one of the early Christian fathers who devised a rule for these daily hours of prayer. I'm just going to read to you from Ingram. We'll make a few comments. Let us see what is to be learned from the rule of St. Benedict, the standard from which all Western European practices were drawn. There are two main purposes of the round of prayer hours. They can hardly be separated, in fact, or one given primacy over the other. But let us put first the public duty of man to praise God. The public duty of man to praise God. You see, praising God is not something we do because we feel like it. It's something we do because we were created to do it. It's our duty, whether we feel like it or not. Men normally have realized that it is as important to the functioning of society to offer public praise to God as it is, say, to keep a night watchman or a public market or a militia. In other words, if you want society to function, you've got to have an army, you've got to have a police force, and you need to have God on your side. And so you need to have public praise. One of the most sublime visions of Christendom was that the monks, spread out all over Europe, kept a continuous sound of worship going up from man to God. Never was there an hour without its sound of praise, because the sun would be coming up at different times all over Europe. Public health and public order depended on it. God's favor was solicited and his wrath appeased, and the promises of the gospel assured in answer to prayer. At the same time, it was regarded as essential that worshiping Christ must be in spirit and in truth. It must be fervent, it must be sincere, it must be with understanding and in accord with the promises of God. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, said James. The duty of public worship clearly demanded it be performed by men of righteous lives, that is, men of faith who lived according to the will of God. So a second purpose of the monastic office was to train and perfect hearts and minds in godliness. No one can long remain under the illusion that anybody can offer acceptable prayer with the back of his hand, so to speak. Much has been made of Brother Lawrence, the illiterate monk whose teachings on prayer were copied down and given to Christians for centuries to inspire their devotion. Brother Lawrence prayed while he was doing dishes or going to market or mending clothes. But sentimental moderns who can read and write but have never experienced the intense discipline of monastic routine have no idea how many years Brother Lawrence attended upon the daily office, hearing and learning by heart the words and the order and coming to a high state of spiritual growth which made it all possible. He and any other person of that age would have been horrified at the idea so widespread today that prayer is just having a cozy little chat with God while you put on your clothes in the morning. One does not draw near to majesty in a slovenly or offhand fashion. If we wish to prefer a petition to men of high station, wrote Benedict, we do not presume to do it without humility and respect. 
How much more ought we to supplicate the Lord God of all things with all humility and pure devotion? Then he makes an observation that must startle many a modern leader of public worship. Imprecise, rambling thoughts and words are insulting to God. Lord, we just want to thank you for your word, and we just want to thank you for thy truth, and, and we just, 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 just. Imprecise, rambling thoughts and words are insulting to God, says Benedict. Well, you may think about that and decide whether you think he's right or wrong. Let us be sure that we shall not be heard for much speaking, but for purity of heart and tears of compunction, continues Benedict. Our prayer, therefore, ought to be short and pure unless it chance to be prolonged by the impulse and inspiration of divine grace. In public, however, let prayer be very short. Know what you want to ask for, ask for it straight out in simple words, and stop. To frame a prayer that is direct and to the point and not cluttered with irrelevant ideas or wandering thoughts takes years and years of training. So then, the second great purpose of this particular kind of worship was to train the worshipers. The monastery, said Benedict, was a school for the Lord's service. The prayer office was supremely the joining of these two into one work. It is the Lord's service, the work of God, and it is a school for the servants. And since a well-trained servant will render due service, it seems to me well for us to approach our worship in morning and evening prayer in the spirit of giving ourselves over to training and learning in the word of God. It is primarily a teaching service, and it must be learned by doing. Then he goes on to say, Sermons are of great importance. But nobody can learn to perform the service of God by hearing a lecture on it or a thousand lectures. To learn to read aloud, one must read aloud day after day and often with coaching. To learn to sing, one must sing. And to learn scripture, one must learn it word for word and by heart. All right? Someone may say, I can memorize scripture quite well by myself at home. Perhaps, but few ever do. All right, now I've read to you a little bit extended there to give you a feel for how a man who really likes the medieval period more than we would can make it sound pretty good. And the reformers were not interested in eliminating this entire system. Calvin was very much in favor of having people attend church every day before they went to work. And in a small town like Geneva where people walked, it wasn't terribly difficult to have people come in, say, at 7.30 in the morning on the way to work to hear a sermon or a lecture and to praise, and then walk on and open up their shops at 9 o'clock. You can do that in a pre-technological, pre-industrial society. It's much more difficult today. The English reformers also took those eight hours of prayer that I listed for you and coalesced them into two, morning prayer and evening prayer. If you've ever been to an Episcopal church, you know that the morning Sunday service is called morning prayer, and they follow that with a service called Holy Communion, which is, corresponds to our service. Then at night they have evening prayer, matins and vespers, as they're traditionally called. They're supposed to have these every day, that's the rule. But ordinarily they only have them on the Lord's Day, and then sometimes they'll have an evening service on Wednesday night like we do here, and a morning service on Thursday. It's become customary to have a morning healing service now on Thursdays in the Episcopal Church. Another interesting idea, but one we won't comment on tonight. So, those are some of the applications that have been made from the biblical teaching on times of worship and worship in the evening. What applications can we make from them? Well, I think practically speaking that the Bible sets out morning and evening or morning, noon and evening as appropriate times of prayer. These are times when most of us try to pray or have family devotion. 
whether it's individualized or made into times of family devotion, we should not ignore what the Bible says about patterns of life because the patterns are given to us as an indication of discipline for our own good. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, and these patterns are revealed to us for our good. We don't think of prayer as a duty generally, do we? We think of it as something that we do because we want to. The stress is love God and then you pray to him. Well, that's fine. I mean, we should. But even if you don't feel like it, prayer is a duty. And the Bible indicates that if we are all priests, then we are all involved in morning and evening sacrifice, aren't we? And if we are all in heaven, like Daniel or Jesus, if we all can come close to God, then maybe morning, noon, and evening are appropriate times for us to try to find at least five minutes to pray. Pray the Lord's Prayer and think about each petition, expand upon each petition, or have some set way to pray. I think that that as a personal discipline, to the extent that we can make a discipline in our families, is a good thing for us to model into our lives and not simply let them go. It might be a good thing for the Christian school, you see. Instead of having just the children in here at 9 o'clock, maybe all of us who can come should be here at 9 o'clock in the morning. There are different kinds of things that one could do. In a modern technological society such as ours, when people drive great distances to go to work, there is no particular virtue in trying to get everybody into church every morning and every night. But the pattern is there. Each of us are priests. And the pattern really should be copied by us as much as we can. Practically speaking, there are books of prayers that one could get. There are the Psalms. You'll find that the Book of Common Prayer, if you own one, a lot of it you wouldn't want to use, but it does have the Psalms laid out in 31 sections, morning and evening. If you were to use that, I've used it in my devotions, and you read sections of the Psalter every morning and every night, and every month you go through a whole Psalter. You can imagine what that would do to your prayer life if you did that for a year or so. So I commend the discipline to you. Since we're all priests, let's all try to follow the pattern that God set forth for the priests. I'll take any questions that you have. All right? Yeah, the Roman Catholic Church still has services for the people in the mornings and at night. And I remember I went to Roman Catholic school grades 2 through 6, and school started at 9, and if we got there early, we'd go into the church, and they were having Mass from 8 to 9, and a lot of the kids would get there at 8 and take Holy Communion, or Holy Eucharist, as they always call it. And a lot of people would manage to get out. Those who needed it, or those who wanted it, or those who could, would come to that service from 7 to 8 every morning, and others in the afternoon. It was made available. In England, by law, the Church of England has to make available the Protestant form of that every morning and every evening. Episcopal churches won't do it in this town because they don't have to. But supposedly, if you showed up at, let's say, 8 o'clock on a Tuesday morning, even if nobody else were there, the minister would be there and it would be available for you. Morning prayer. That's the idea. Of course, it's all decadent now, unlike the time of the Reformation when there would have been lots of people there morning and evening every day. But the churches, uh, the worship and instruction is made available for those who can take advantage of it. The problem with that that the reformers saw is that it becomes a matter of worshiping by proxy. 
Well, we don't really need to go to church and worship because there are all these professionals there and they do it for us. In fact, we can pay them money and they'll say a mass or two for us and it'll be good for us, you see. Because of that abuse, there's a tendency not to take advantage of the use, but there is an advantage to having these things made available. And the Bible seems to indicate it. I think we're probably the poorer for having gotten so far away from these biblical patterns. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.